Hello, everybody. This is our fourth sermon looking at the book of 1 Kings. And today we're looking at 1 Kings uh, chapter 5, verse 1 through to verse 12 of chapter 7. And the title for this sermon is Lessons in Worship from Solomon's Building Projects. Over the last two years, we at Isla Baptist Church have been on a bit of a journey with our buildings. In fact, it may surprise you to hear that we have spent nearly £40,000 upon them. That is a lot of money for a church our size. What have we done? Well, here in Port Ellen, we've replaced the windows and the heating system. We've taken out the pews. We've put in comfortable seating. We've re-waterproofed the walls and decorated throughout. This room is almost unrecognisable to how it was two years ago. Then in Bermore, we've put in a brand new kitchen, fixed some plumbing, erected a new shed to give us some storage space. All of these projects were only possible because of your generous giving and the time and hard work put in by so many. But of course, the important question is not necessarily what have we done or how much did it cost? The most important question is, why did we do it? Why did we go to all this effort? I hope that it would be agreed that we did it all for the glory of God. We wanted a building that did not look in disrepair, but honoured God. We wanted a space where we could worship and visitors would feel welcome. We wanted our buildings to be fit for holding events and activities where the gospel could be shared with our community. We wanted our buildings to be a resource that would enable this church to go on serving God for decades to come. Yes, we benefit from these comfortable seats and the warm heating, but ultimately we did not do it for us. We did it for the Lord. However, that said, with great irony, we've also learned something else about buildings over the last two years. At the same time as we've been ploughing money into doing our buildings up, we have discovered that actually buildings are not that important. For a large part of the pandemic, the doors were shut. We just could not gather inside. Yet the church did not close, did it? Suddenly we were online using the technology of Zoom and YouTube for our fellowship, teaching and praise. Suddenly the conversations with our neighbours in the streets became much more important. Suddenly our Christian service was demonstrated in food parcels and telephone calls and daily acts of practical kindness. We learned through the pandemic that our faith did not rely on our buildings at all. Our worship was not only reserved to them, and God could certainly meet us outside of them. In this way, the pandemic helped put our £40,000 worth of spending in stark perspective. In our passage today, we're going to go through a very similar experience. We're going to read of the great building projects that King Solomon undertook, building projects that very much dwarf our own. Yet through it all, we're going to see that the lessons God really wants us to learn are not so much about the practicality of building things, but what makes up real worship. In these chapters, we're going to see what God really wants from us in response to all that which he so wonderfully has already done for us. 
Our passage began by stating what Solomon's intentions were when he began work on building the temple in Jerusalem. In verse 5 of chapter 5, Solomon wrote this, I intend to build a temple for the name of the Lord my God. That is a very good intention indeed. When Solomon speaks of wanting to build a temple for the name of his God, he wants to build something that is going to honour God. The temple was going to spread God's fame and reputation out into the world just by the scale of its presence in the city. We know that it was Solomon's father, David, who had first been concerned about building a temple for the Lord. He'd been a little anxious that he lived in a house of panelled cedar while the Ark of the Lord still dwelt in a flimsy tent. And that discrepancy did not sit well with David. He felt that God was due more. Yet for many reasons, David did not get a chance to build the temple that he dreamed of. Instead, the task was handed down to his own son, Solomon. Solomon's instinct then to complete the project that his father had dreamed of was good. In fact, he was being obedient to the word of the Lord, as God had previously said that this was what would take place. For Solomon, building the temple was an act of worship. At the beginning of chapter 6, we're told that this building work took place 480 years after Israel had escaped Egypt in the Exodus. In Solomon's mind, despite all the time that had passed, these two events were linked. For centuries, God had proved himself to be the creator, provider and protector of Israel. He'd rescued them from adversity many times and brought them to a place of peace. He'd made promises to his people and kept every one of them. And it was in response to all this goodness and grace that Solomon decided to build a house for the Lord. It was an act of heartfelt worship. And we can see how heartfelt it was through the details of chapter 5. Solomon dedicated all of his attention and wisdom to seeing the project through. He worked hard at diplomacy with the king of Tyre, forging peace with him, making trade links with a treaty. He cleverly delegated the work as best he could, employing 3,000 foremen to oversee it, ensuring standards remained high. We get a sense from these verses that Solomon is throwing everything he has at this project. It's his energy, his drive, his initiative that sees it into being. Building the temple was Solomon's heartfelt worship in response to all that God had done for his people. Now, it's because this building of the temple was an act of worship, an act that pleased the Lord, that these chapters of the Bible remain relevant to us today. There's a great temptation when we come across a passage like this in the Old Testament that lists things like building dimensions to just skip over it, to see it as unimportant. However, if we see everything that takes place here as an act of worship done for the name of the Lord, then suddenly there begin to be things for us to take away. In all the detail of chapters 5 and 6, I think we can see three characteristics that go to make up the type of worship that really pleases God. The first thing I think we see is that worship that is pleasing to God is often costly to the believer or believers who are offering it. Amongst all the details of Solomon's trade deal with the king of Tyre is something quite profound. Solomon promises to give grain to Hiram in response to the timber from his land and the work of his men. 
In fact, Solomon offers to give Hiram almost the exact same amount of grain each year as he himself requires to feed his own people. Now let us think for a moment. Where is that extra grain going to come from? It's going to come from the taxes paid by the people of Israel. The grain tax is going to be doubled for the duration of the temple project. That is going to have a big impact. The cost is going to be felt by all God's people. But it goes even further than that. The passage goes on to give details on how the work is going to be carried out. The shift patterns of the labourers, if you will. In a section we did not read from the end of chapter 5, we hear that 30,000 men are going to spend one month in every three away from Israel. They're going to travel to Lebanon, harvest the trees and dig out the rock. That is one month in every three away from their family and their friends and their farms. One month in every three for seven long years. There is no doubt that as Solomon built God's temple, he wanted to give God the best. He wanted to build something so magnificent that it reflected God's glory out into the world for others to see. And to do that, he would use the finest stone and cedar and gold, all of which came at a cost. Still today, there is a costliness to worship. I don't just mean putting money in an offering bag though that is an important part of stewarding what God has given us. Worship involves us giving our best in response to what God has given us. It involves being sacrificial. Gathering to praise God on a Sunday instead of going to work and making more money, for an example. Choosing to spend time in God's presence through Bible study and prayer rather than just going out with our friends. Being open about our faith, even when that brings mockery from colleagues at work. God has given us far, far more than we could ever give back to him in return, but we should recognise that there is a cost to true worship. Solomon knew that God was worth that cost. Let us know the same. The second thing that I think we see is that the worship that pleases God is reverent. In other words, it's not slapdash or unthinking, but take seriously the holiness of the Lord that we praise. In verse 7 of chapter 6, we read a strange description about the how the temple work was carried out. In building the temple, only blocks dressed at the quarry were used, and no hammer, chisel, or any other iron tool was heard at the temple site while it was being built. Why on earth were no hammers, chisels or iron tools allowed on the temple site? You try building a large structure without them. It would certainly have made the workers' lives much harder. Why was this instruction followed? And why does the writer of 1 Kings deem it so important as to include it in these chapters? The reason is because in the Old Testament law, God gave an instruction to Moses. While Moses was high up on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments and the like, God told him how Israel were to go about building altars. This is what God said, Exodus 20 verse 25. If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed stones, for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. God was teaching Moses that he didn't want fancy ornate altars like the pagans made. He wanted Israel to stand out and be different. 
He wanted Israel to know that he was not restricted to special altar sites. As Lord of heaven and earth, he was free to move anywhere. If Israel were to place a memorial to an act of God then, they were to keep it simple. Just place a rock on the ground, that'll be enough. Then the people would not be tempted to worship the rock, but will keep their attention on the Lord. Now here's the thing, Solomon is not building an altar, he's building a temple. So this rather obscure law from Moses does not really apply to him. But Solomon is so concerned about the holiness of God and following his instructions, he obeys it anyway. He keeps the law just in case. He keeps the law even though it will make building the temple ten times harder. There is no question that Solomon here has a great reverence for God. We see that also in the way he lays out the temple, designating the inner sanctuary as the most holy place, a place where human beings can't just march in on the holy presence of God. But we'll talk about that next week. For now, let us just see Solomon's great concern to honour the Lord with respect and reverence. He has a healthy fear of God. He will not take him for granted and will keep things in perspective. God is God. He is not. He must bow in worship. And again, the same should be true of our worship today. We are immensely privileged to be welcomed into God's presence by the death of Jesus. We have been brought into the family of the Lord and made a child of God. The Bible tells us that we can come before God in prayer and worship with confidence. But that is not an excuse for apathy or trivialization. We must always remember the holiness of God. We should live in awe of it. We should show respect in our worship, both in what we say and how we conduct ourselves. So, pleasing worship is costly and it is reverent. The third thing I think we learn about the worship that pleases God is that it can be creative. In the second half of chapter 6, which we didn't have time to read, we hear the decorations adorning the temple and its walls. There are palm trees and cherubim and open flowers, all carefully carved out of wood and exquisitely covered with hammered gold. The temple must have been an extraordinary sight, a real assault on the senses. It radiated beauty. It was packed full of brilliant art and the finest craftsmanship. You see, God is delighted when we use our talents when we use the arts to worship him. After all, he's the creator God and he made us in his image. He wants us to use the creativity he has invested in us to honour him. There's something very interesting about the palm trees, the cherubim and the open flowers. Archaeologists have discovered that these were very common motifs in the culture of the day. They were part of the style and the fashion of the age. And what that means is that although Solomon's temple was utterly unique in purpose, its design and decoration reflected the conventions of the time. It is a striking example of how a prevailing culture can be employed for the worship of God. I guess if Solomon was building his temple today, there'd be lots of glass, a minimalist floor pan, maybe modern art on the walls, fancy light installations, and maybe even a band playing worship songs in the corner. God never gave any precise instructions for the building of the temple as he did with the tabernacle. Solomon and his workers then got to employ their artistic talent 
And by the fact that God took up residence in this temple, he must have been delighted by it. Worship today is still to be creative. If God has given you the ability to paint or sew, to make sculpture or produce crafts, to play music or write poetry, then use that ability in worship of him. Share your creativity with the rest of us and allow us to be inspired by it in our worship as well. I love the hangings and the decorations that Ray and others have made for Port Ellen. Let's keep them coming. Pleasing worship is creative because that's giving our best, giving our very selves back to the Lord. So far then, we have discovered Solomon's building of the temple to be an act of worship. And as such, we have drawn a few principles on how we might worship God still today. Worship is to be costly, reverent and creative. But now we must turn to the most important verses in the whole reading, for they're going to bring us to attention and keep everything in perspective. Amongst the long description of the temple building in verses 11 to 13 of chapter 6, all the readers of 1 Kings get a jolt because suddenly God speaks. The only words he says directly in the entire section. Let's listen again, for this is really important. The word of the Lord came to Solomon. As for this temple you are building, if you follow my decrees, observe my laws and keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David, your father, and I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people, Israel. What is going on here? Well, God has seen what Solomon is up to. He's been watching as the temple work has begun. And so far, he seems to be pleased. But he doesn't want Solomon to get ahead of himself. He doesn't want Solomon and all the people to fall into a false impression. Under no circumstances are they to be fooled into thinking that he, the Lord of heaven and earth, can be tamed and kept locked up in a box. No matter how magnificent that box may be. Solomon has done right to build the temple. His instinct to give God glory was a good one, but Solomon was not to lose perspective. In the ancient Near East, many kings built temples as a sign of the permanence of their reign. They built temples so they would never be forgotten. As such, Solomon may have thought that if he built this temple, it would ensure the future of the nation and it would enshrine his reputation as God's king. With that in mind, God wants to put things absolutely straight. God has already made the promise that he would permanently be with his people. He'd made a covenant with them and he would never abandon them. Building a fancy temple made no difference to that promise whatsoever. Neither did building the temple absolve Solomon and the people of Israel from keeping their side of the covenant that God had made with them. Beauty and art are lovely but they would never be a substitute for hard-fought obedience to God's word and his commands. In other words, God will live with his people. That is his promise, but not because they built him a trendy box. He will do it if they follow his instructions. You see, the true worship that God really wants, both then and now, is the worship of our everyday lives. And in this respect, as we stated at the beginning of this sermon, buildings mean absolutely nothing. 
God sees what we are up to in our houses, when we're at work and on the streets of Isla. He doesn't just see what we do when we're before him in a church building. Now, of course, the beauty of that is that when a pandemic hits and our buildings are closed, God is more than capable of still meeting with us hearing our prayers, helping us from day to day. He has met us in our kitchens and in our bedrooms and on the streets. He's met with us in our most lonely and darkest moments. He's also met with us across cyberspace as we've gathered on Zoom. God is not limited to a building. He is everywhere. But this beautiful message comes with a challenge. God always sees us. And the worship he wants is not just for Sundays, but every day of the week. True worship of God then involves a decision about our priorities in life, and it is with this that we shall finish. Did you notice that our passage ended with a whole load of difficult questions? In verses 38 of chapter 6, it told us that it took Solomon seven years to build the temple, the magnificent house of the Lord. But verse 1 of chapter 7 begins with an important word. However, it took Solomon seven years to build the house of the Lord. However, it took him 13 years to build his own house. Solomon built God a massive temple. It was grand and sparkling. However, he then built himself a house that was even bigger. In fact, by the time he'd finished it, the palace complex of King Solomon dwarfed the temple. Is there an implicit criticism of Solomon here? You can decide that for yourselves. But the narrator has made some things very clear. Solomon took twice as long on his house as he did on the house of the Lord. His house was bigger than the house of the Lord. And it was a house that he didn't even need because his father, King David, had already built a perfectly adequate house for the king in Jerusalem. So what was Solomon really up to? Was all this building work an act of political pride? Was it a vain attempt to attract the attention of the likes of Egypt and Syria? Was it a boast of personal advancement over spiritual commitment? We do not know exactly. The text does not say. We are just left to wrestle with the questions. If you want me to come off the fence, I think that Solomon was faithful in building the temple. His instincts were good and he used his wisdom well. But at the same time, the seeds of destruction for Solomon's reign were being planted as well. It's a very short road to disaster when our priorities are wrong. I think the narrator of 1 Kings is very deliberate. He spends just 12 verses describing Solomon's palace, while he spends three whole chapters describing the building of the temple. The palace may have dwarfed the temple, but the writer makes sure that the temple dwarfs the palace in his description. He is deliberately correcting the perspective and pointing to the right priority. Worship of God must always come above personal advancement. And perhaps that is the most important lesson about worship that we learn from these chapters. In life, we must strive to put God first to make him the object of our attention and praise every single day, just as he deserves to be. It is a sombre reflection that despite the epic grandeur of the temple, despite the pages and pages of Old Testament devoted to it, that temple no longer operates. 
as you will know, there are only ruins in Jerusalem now, and there of a later temple, not even this one. Interestingly, archaeologists have found no trace of Solomon's palace at all. So great was its destruction. Why is there no working temple? Because God's people did not heed the warning about worship during the week being more important than what they did in a building on the Sabbath. The people of God consistently got their priorities wrong and judgment and exile was the result. Of course, we know that still through all that sin, God never broke his promise to his people. He would be with them and never abandon them. And so he sent his own son, Jesus, into the world. In Jesus, God lived among the people. In Jesus, God offered forgiveness so complete that the sacrifice system of the temple was no longer required. It is to Jesus that all the glory now is due. Let's make sure our priorities are right here at Isla Baptist Church. Our church buildings mean nothing, really. What matters is living for Jesus with everything we've got in every place we go and on every day of our lives. That is the worship that will please the Lord and honour his name.